Okay, welcome everyone to One of 200, the uh, New Zealand and International Politics Podcast. This is your host, uh, Brian Kumatitich. I'm here with my uh, co-host, Paul Callum. Paul, how are you going? Good, thanks, Branko. I'm glad to be here. And uh, we're both glad to have a, a very good guest uh, here today to, to explain to us a little bit of what's going on in the UK, but also some more general things about this this uh, terrible problem of inflation that is now sort of the, the big economic bugbear in basically every country in the world. Uh, we have here Grace Blakely, uh, all the way from, from uh, London. Am I? Am Honey I London, yeah. Okay, great, great. Uh, and and uh, so we're very happy to have you. Thank you for, for being on. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you guys. Well, uh, let's start with, you know, may, maybe a little bit of a, uh, you know, a current events focused uh, uh, question, which is just, I want you to give us a sense of what is the discourse around inflation in the UK? Because I think a lot of our listeners in New Zealand and the US and elsewhere, you know, they would have familiarity with what politicians are saying in those mm. particular countries. But I'm curious, what is, what is it that politicians, thinkers, commentators and so on, are saying about inflation? What is the, the status uh, of the inflation issue uh, in the UK at the moment? Yeah, so I mean, a lot of commentary in the UK, um, and I'm sure this is similar in other parts of the world, is trying to pin the problem of inflation on wages. Now, we know that this is completely and utterly absurd based on um, the data that we have available. So in the UK, for example, real wages, so wages adjusted for inflation, have actually fallen um, recently. And that's on the back of a decade of wage stagnation. Similar case uh, for the US, where you've got uh, the, the average worker in purchasing power parity terms is as well off as they were in 1979. So there's been really no growth in incomes for the average person over that, um, that time period. So the problem is not wages. We know the problem isn't wages. And part of the reason we know the problem isn't wages is because these are economies in which bargaining power is very low. So a lot of people are kind of trying to draw on this 1970s um, style rubric to analyze inflation, which is that costs go up, organized workers demand wage increases in line with inflation, and that creates something called a wage price spiral, which creates positive feedback. Now, to an extent, although not nearly as much as people argue, that was the case in the 1970s. The 1970s, it was again, primarily about energy after the formation of OPEC. To an extent, that happened in the 70s. But today, when you've got, you've had decades of erosion of the power of the labor movement, it is just not feasible to argue that there are these well-organized workers demanding wage increases in line with inflation, when most of them have barely any bargaining power whatsoever. Most of them, especially when we're looking at low-wage sectors, don't even have enough bargaining power to argue for secure contracts, for benefits, for you know wage increases that allow them to just about get by. So, the problem is definitely not wages. Um, and obviously, for political reasons, we will continue to see politicians trying to pin the blame on workers. But it is categorically not that. There are a number of forces driving this. The main one, of course, being energy. Um, now, looking back over the last couple of years, we got to a point where energy prices reached real, real lows. That was during the, the peak of the pandemic, where we had all this panic about oil prices reach, reaching zero, effectively, in futures markets. Now, that was a bit of a quirk, um, both to do with the nature of futures markets themselves, but also to do with the fact that there were these shutdowns on economic activity that meant we were using less energy. What then happened um, was the uh, supply kind of came down 
um, to uh, to meet with lower levels of demand. Um, and now we're reaching the point where demand has gone up really, really quickly again. Um, and there are combined with those pre-existing reductions in supply, new bottlenecks in global supply chains that we've heard about in terms of um, allowing, yes, energy, uh, so oil and, and other um, fossil fuel commodities themselves to flow around easily, but also more critically, goods and services. And when there are difficulties in transporting these goods and services, that also translates into higher inflation. So it's really this combination of rising energy prices um, and, of course, geopolitical tensions very much feeding into that and supply chain issues that's driving um, inflation at the moment, not wages. Well, uh, let's kind of go back to the, the origin of this. You, you mentioned uh, the previous inflation crisis in the, in the 70s, and you've written about how the, the decade of the 70s and the policies that were pursued uh, then and, 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 and later sort of created the world that we're in now, the, the, the choice of monetary policy and the like. Can you give us a, you know, a, a, a kind of broad overview of, of why that is exactly? How is it the world of the 70s and the choices that were made then basically ended up creating the situation that, that we're in now? Yeah. So, um, you know, I think a, a kind of an easy way to understand this really is to think about um, the last kind of hundred or so years of capitalism as being characterized by a series of different institutional configurations. So it's all capitalism, but there are different kind of balances of class power and different institutions designed to um, kind of contain that balance of class power in different periods. Before the um, First World War, you had that kind of laissez-faire um, period in which, you know, it was all up kind of promoting free trade, reducing um, restrictions on the ability of staff and people and goods to uh, money to move around the world um, and kind of freeing up domestic markets and in inverted commas alongside, obviously, um, the real restrictions that continue to exist as part of imperial um, trading preferences and, uh, and and the policies that that related to that. Um, and that was, uh, I, I suppose, kind of a time of like unrestrained capitalism and unrestrained kind of early, early capitalism, um, well, early-ish capitalism. So you had um, some large corporations, but by no means the kind of multinationals that are straddling the global economy today. Um, and uh, at the same time, you know, some technological impediments on the ability to, of, to basically of capital to kind of move all around um, the world. What we then had uh, as um, inequality skyrocketed under that regime um, was a, a two decades-ish of, of breakdown, of collapse, basically, resulting in two world wars and uh, the Great Depression. And then coming out of that period of crisis, you had a new institutional configuration um, that um, was reflected in a changing uh, balance of power at the level of the nation state and also a, a different set of rules to govern globalization at the international level. So within the rich world, um, you saw a shift in the balance of power between capital and labor, largely because workers had gained a lot of bargaining power during the Second World War when they were needed as part of the war effort, and also because of the growing power of the state and its ability and desire to contain capital, um, to contain capital mobility and also to increase taxes during the Second World War. So the state has power expanded and also um, it was 
oriented towards kind of containing the power of capital. So you had this shift in the balance of power domestically. Um, bear in mind, by the way, that at this point in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, there was still empire. So that was still a factor. And these uh, insights often only apply really to countries in the global north. But there was definitely a shift there. At the international level, you had... Bretton Woods, um, which was a series of agreements um, and the creation of uh, new institutions that um, were oriented towards stabilizing trade flows, stabilizing capital flows um, and um, stabilizing exchange rates. So lots of different currencies were pegged to the dollar. The dollar was pegged to gold and restraints on capital mobility and credit creation um, were implemented to kind of basically curb what economists like Keynes called the rentier capital that was circulating around the world. And those measures together um, combined as well as kind of the end of empire um, and um, the emergence of a kind of uh, different set of orthodoxies in terms of economic management, in partly due to um, the rise of the USSR and its sponsoring of different kinds of regimes all around the world. All of this meant that the kind of unrestrained free market capitalism of before the First World War was contained somewhat. During that period of relative stability, so that was pretty much end of the 40s, 50s and early 60s, you had relatively high wages for um, many workers in the global north. You had um, relatively kind of low and stable inflation um, and a, a fairly kind of smooth economic cycle, so not lots of boom and bust. Um, it was during the 60s that that bargain really started to break down. So capital started to kind of break free of those constraints, technological change, meant it was easier for money to move around the world. You had new financial innovations like the creation of the euro dollar markets. Um, that was the original sin in many ways with the regards to the UK uh, laundering Russian money, because um, it was a lot of Soviet money that came into the UK um, at that point into London to avoid um, being held in, in American banks, which is uh, what many of those kind of people who were trying to hide that money were concerned about. So creation of the euro dollar markets um, facilitated capital mobility, lots of other technological factors facilitated capital mobility. And that's when you started to see the cracks opening in this model. At the same time, in the early 70s, you get the breakdown of Bretton Woods. The dollar is unpegged from the gold standard. Uh, and eventually the whole system of exchange rate pegging breaks down. So you move to floating exchange rates. And those capital controls and exchange controls at the same time are eroded. Um, then you get the oil price spike. So 1971, 1973, the formation of OPEC, um, which is the kind of oil producing uh, countries come together and say, we are going to use our collective power to dictate a uh, lower bound in terms of the oil price to make us more money, basically, from selling these, uh, these commodities abroad. And that drives up inflation. And the really key point to remember here is that energy prices are so important to commodity prices across the whole economy. Now, that's for very the very obvious reason that energy is required to transport commodities, but it's also because fossil fuels go into the creation of so many materials that we don't really think about. So particularly, obviously, plastics, but also um, natural gas is used in fertilizers and in um, the production of agricultural commodities as well. So you've seen food prices go up quite dramatically now, as you did back then as well. So the energy price spike drives up inflation quite a lot. And this really is the kind of um, 
the turning point for the post-war consensus model because suddenly you have this big looming threat of inflation. And what inflation effectively means is prices are rising and somebody's going to have to pay for that, right? And either you can make capital pay for it by um, basically allowing wages and price and goods prices to increase um, without uh, basically that erodes the real value of assets, or you can make workers pay, pay for it by keeping wages down um, and trying to kind of stop inflation from increasing in that way, which again is about protecting the value of assets. And there was a big battle that took place throughout the course of the 1970s and the early 80s in most major advanced economies as to who would pay the price for inflation. Ultimately, after um, you know uh, a series of strikes, the winter of discontent in the UK, after the miners' strike, um, the election of Thatcher, the election of Reagan, the Volcker shock, all of these massive economic shocks, it was capital that won that battle quite firmly and quite clearly. Um, and the costs of, uh, of, of inflation, the costs of the economic crisis that many countries were then going through, were firmly imposed on workers. And um, with the power of organized labor contained and repressed, Thatcher, Reagan and others set about kind of unleashing the power of capital. So introducing a whole swathe of reforms from privatization to cutting taxes to you know anti-trade union laws that really gave us the economy that we live in today. And it is almost in some ways, and now we're definitely seeing this in terms of levels of inequality, a return to that um, pre First World War gilded age of inequality and unrestrained capitalism. Um, and inflation was always a really, really significant part of that because, again, the question is who is going to be made to pay for it? I'm curious, Paul, if, if I could just bring you in uh, for a second. Uh, you know, uh, you mentioned this happened in basically every advanced economy in the world. How how does this narrative compare to, to what we saw in, say, New Zealand uh, through the, the the late 70s and the 80s uh, when, when you, know, you had the neoliberal turn there? Yeah, yeah, I think there's, um, you know, a lot of, you know, resonance with what Grace is saying. Um, the the oil shock um, was was massive for New Zealand, you know, small economy on the other side of the world, um, very dependent on oil. But also at that time, um, you know, the UK was our major trading partner and, you know, they joined the European Economic Community at, at that time. So that kind of, um, you know, disrupted our, our trade quite a lot. Um, and, and I guess this is this is probably really useful for our New Zealand listeners to to sort of put a lot of what Grace is saying in the, in the New Zealand context and kind of relate it to, um, you know, their experience today and, and what's happened since the 80s, as you were saying, Branko. But at, at that time, we also had um, a prime minister named Robert Muldoon um, and sort of his response to uh, a lot of this. Uh, he was also the finance minister, so he sort of concentrated a lot of power um, in, in himself at the time. And, and his response was to, do a lot of sort of like massive infrastructure projects. Um, so what, what we sort of called the Think Big projects at the time, took on a lot of a lot of foreign debt to to sort of fund this, and, and that this all sort of culminated in in a currency crisis, um, sort of around the early 1980s, and you know around the 84 election. Uh, at, at the time, the New Zealand dollar was sort of pegged to the US dollar. So what Grace was talking about in terms of the breaking down of Bretton Woods and the and the gold standard. Um, and the, and the floating of currencies this sort of, was sort of all around that period. Um, so, so the New Zealand dollar was pegged to the US dollar uh, and, the, and there was sort of a, a big crisis, I guess, of, um, you know, uh, that there was a run on the dollar and what speculation about what was gonna happen with the value of the dollar. Um, and I guess this is all good context for what happened afterwards 
which was, you know, New Zealand had its own, um, you know, sweeping kind of neoliberal reforms and, and in many ways was sort of regarded as the kind of laboratory, I guess, um, of, of neoliberalism being a kind of small economy and one of the sort of first to undertake a bunch of these reforms. But one thing that I find really interesting about this is that then the uh, Reserve Bank Act came in in 1989 and that sort of enshrined the kind of independence of the Reserve Bank and, um, and New Zealand actually was one of the first, um, or probably the first economy, I think, to have formal inflation targeting um, by the Reserve Bank. So that, I guess, um, provided a, a sense of legitimacy to um, what Grace is talking about in terms of, you know, focusing on, on inflation and getting that down and then, and then who, uh, who pays the cost for that. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's, that's a bit of New Zealand history to hopefully um, help um, ground our New Zealand listeners in, in what Grace is saying. But that probably comes to another question um, that I've got for you, Grace, um, which, which I find really interesting around, uh, you've, you've written about how um, the ideas of, you know, these economic ideas of, of the rate of interest and inflation and so on um, get sort of naturalized, um, quote unquote naturalized. Um, and that kind of helps, I guess, to um, make them sort of the domain of, of like technocrats and, um, and people who have the sort of the correct answer um, to what we should do about the economy. Um, and I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about that um, and, and like, why, why is that bad? Like, why is there not sort of just one correct answer? Um, and, you know, what does the left do um, about this kind of phenomenon? Because in New Zealand in particular, I find that, you know, that history that I was talking about has meant that, um, you know, these ideas are, are really entrenched and, and unquestioned, um, I guess, by our sort of media and politicians. Um, so yeah, it'd be, be great if you can um, talk a little bit about that. So that's a that's a really good point. Um, the depoliticization of economic management was one of the big, um, another big shift that took that took place with the transition towards neoliberalism. And when I talk about politicization, um, people often think of politics as like you know just what political parties do. But actually, what we're talking about here is um, bargaining over the distribution of costs and benefits of economic policy by different groups. Um, so in the post-war period, you had a much more overt system of basically corporatism, where business leaders, unionists, labor leaders, and politicians and technocrats would kind of come together and bargain over who would get what. So um, over kind of the base level of wage increases over um, questions around kind of interest rates and investment and all these different sorts of things. And that was therefore an, a much more overtly political approach to economic management because it recognized that all of these decisions around interest rates, inflation, investment had distributive effects. So they weren't just kind of technical levers, they would end up benefiting some and, and, and harming others. The big shift under neoliberalism was to say, this is all wrong. Our economy has been captured by um, a bunch of, of unionists, basically, and, um, and workers who have kind of gotten too big for their boots, who think that they have the right to influence the way that we manage the economy. And as a result, they have created inefficiencies. They have created distortions. You know, this... Um, the idea was basically that the politicization of economic management was all the fault of organized labor. 
And if you just removed organized labor from the equation, then you would depoliticize economic management um, because you wouldn't have what inverted commas kind of vested interests governing the policy process. You could basically just say, right, well, we will analyze, um, you know, the rate of economic growth, we'll analyze price levels, we'll try and determine how much um, scope there is in the economy for further growth. And on that basis, we'll set interest rates, we'll, you know, set various other er elements of policy. And economists developed, you know, various different kinds of macroeconomic models to try and do this um, estimation, do the, the, these processes of both estimation and um, interest rate setting and also a uh, fiscal policy, so government spending um, more effectively. Um, and the way that they constructed those models, again, was political because it relied on a bunch of different kinds of assumptions about who would get the gains from growth, about, you know, um, what determined wages, what determined profits, all of these things. And all of those models largely excluded any questions of power. So it was always just the assumption that the economy tends towards equilibrium. Um, and um, as, as long as there are no distortions created by vested interests, then things will tend towards equilibrium. And it is the job of a good economic management manager to make sure that the economy stays in equilibrium, which is basically the idea that, um, you know, the, the market clearing point. So, um, yeah, this is all the way back to kind of walrus and early economics about what economic equilibrium actually means. And there's still kind of various different interpretations of, of what that means. But if you can, when you look at it from the, the kind of macroeconomic perspective, what policymakers are searching for is basically a, a level of kind of stable employment and inflation that facilitates sustainable economic growth. Um, but in, as I said, kind of in creating those models, which are designed to, um, yeah, kind of carve out um, the policy process purely for, for technocrats. Um, we did not actually depoliticize uh, the management of the economy. We didn't depoliticize monetary policy. What we did instead was made the political underpinnings of monetary policy invisible. Um, and the way that you did this was because, you know, organized labor being involved in macroeconomic management during the post-war period was unusual. And that's why it seemed political. But actually, um, it was just a different kind of politics, because prior to that and after that, you had vested interests that were influencing what would happen with interest rates, with fiscal policy, with whatever. It's just that we are so used to um, big business, uh, lobbying groups, financial institutions, working within the apparatus of, of the state to make sure that their interests are met, that we don't see that as politics. But of course it is. Um, and what happened with central bank independence and with the idea that uh, central bankers could just determine the right rate of, um, of let's say, it, of the right interest rate, um, was the, the voices and the power of that kind of, of capital, basically, became much stronger relative to the, the voice and the power of organized labor, which was largely excluded. And because there was then no conflict or very little conflict, it seemed like the politics had been taken out of the equation, but it hadn't. It had just been dominated by this one, um, this one section. So in the UK, there's a really interesting example here. In the 1990s, after central bank independence, um, one of the um, economists on, um, I think it's, he was on the MPC, is um, caught saying that unemployment in the North is a small price to pay for curbing inflation in the South. Now, 
what this shows us is that central bankers and technocrats know that the decisions that they're making are political because they have distributive implications. It's not just the case that everyone gets better off when you change, let's say, the interest rate. Some people get better off, some people get worse off. And when you know, you're prioritizing curbing inflation over um, curbing employment, you are prioritizing the interests of capital over the interests of, of labor and over the interests of workers. And that's really what became institutionalized over the course of the neoliberal period. But at the same time, again, because of the absence of conflict, because of this technocratic, neutral sounding, scientific, and ultimately kind of quite difficult to understand language, it looked as though the politics had been taken out of it with central bank independence, but the politics hadn't been taken out of it. It's just that a few very powerful people were able to kind of influence um, what was going on much more easily than others. And actually what's been really interesting that's happened since the financial crisis is, um, so the, 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 the policy shift towards central bank independence took place in several phases. At first, you had the kind of monetarist orthodoxy, um, which was basically that you know, central bankers need to focus on containing and controlling the money supply in order to control inflation. This was wrong, largely discredited, but used as an excuse basically to massively hike interest rates, engineering a recession, which severely weakened organized labor. That was eventually ditched um, as central bankers realized it wasn't actually a very good way of managing inflation. And you move towards um, inflation targeting of the kind that we have today, where central bankers say, looking forward, we are going to target uh, an inflation rate of, say, between one and two percent. One of the ways they do that is by influencing interest rates. And this happens in different ways in different parts of the world. But generally, they do that by buying and selling um, short dated government bonds. And what that does is influence the influences the base rate of um, interest on government borrowing, which is supposed to be the safest asset. So it's supposed to um, link to interest rates on all other forms of debt. This is kind of the safest form of debt. So the interest rate on government debt is supposed to link to other forms of debt. Your mortgage, for example, is is probably going to be linked to the um, rate of interest on a, on a short term government bond. But what they said when they were doing this was not that they were actively influencing interest rates. Central bankers said that they were influencing short-term interest rates to make sure that they aligned with this vague idea of the natural long-run equilibrium interest rate. Um, and this would be the interest rate at which kind of um, employment, inflation um, were, uh, yeah, kind of broadly in line with one another and, and where you'd get sustainable long-run growth. You wouldn't have an output gap. Um, that was always you know, difficult really to um, to prove because, you know, it was difficult to say what the natural long run rate of interest would be, how you would be able to determine it, how central banks even knew what they were doing when it came to that. But now, since we've had quantitative easing, where governments, um, where central bankers, sorry, have said, we're going to influence the long run interest rate as well as the short run interest rate by buying and selling long dated government bonds, that has gone. So there's no longer any capacity among central bankers to say we're just respecting the basic laws of economics and looking towards that natural long run rate of interest, because the natural long run rate of interest is now something that they are determining and shaping. So that naturalization, that was all a little bit complicated, uh, but basically what it comes down to is the fact that the naturalization of monetary policy that um, neoliberalism has really relied on is 
kind of creaking and breaking down because it's all becoming much more political. Yeah, it's funny what you say about central bank independence. Of course, we, we think of independence as being independent of, I guess, uh, partisan affiliation or, or you know, capital P, uh, capital P politics, but it's not fully uh, independence from, say, the finance sector where you yeah. know, people who run these things come from, they get inculcated with a certain worldview, possibly even have their own uh, financial ties uh, that they may be shaping the, the decision. So that's always a, a thing worth remembering. Um, can I ask you, you know, what, what would your ideal response be to this, uh, this kind of global inflation crisis right now? You know, we're, we're hearing all the, the, the usual stuff, you know, let's just cut wages and, and do all the stuff within the 1970s and 80s. If, if in, in a, uh, you know, we have a fan fiction universe and you were, you were running the country, what would you uh, like to see happen? Yeah, so the first thing um, that we need to bear in mind when thinking about any of this stuff is the question we need to be asking when we're thinking about inflation is who is paying for it? Now, when you think about it in those terms, rather than just what's the kind of correct economic tool to use to curb inflation, bearing in mind that any response is going to have costs and benefits that differ for different groups, then nothing is off the table. Um, and historically, obviously, we've only seen central banks trying to do this thing of, of influencing short-term interest rates um, in order to curb inflation. And the idea behind that is that you influence short-term interest rates, let's say inflation is high, you raise interest rates on government bonds, which then has a feed-through effect to um, the rates of interest in other areas of the economy. So say, um, for business investment, that becomes more expensive for businesses to borrow, which means businesses borrow less, which means they create fewer jobs, which means kind of wages stagnate, economic growth stagnates, and inflation should then come down uh, because the economy isn't overheating as much as it was. And the inverse is true for when inflation is low and you want to increase employment. Um, that has not been a, an effective tool for a while now because interest rates hit zero. Um, after the financial crisis, and there wasn't really a lot policymakers could do to stimulate the economy more. So they resorted to quantitative easing, which had all sorts of other really negative effects, increasing wealth inequality, creating financial instability, all not great stuff. Um, so, you know, we know now that those tools have their limitations. And we also know that if you start reversing all of that stuff and increasing interest rates again, because they went down to very, very low levels, um, you're not going to just undo all of those negative effects. So even if very, very loose monetary policy wasn't great, tightening it is not going to reduce inequality. Um, and the reason for that is that the least well off in society often have a lot of debt and they often have a lot of very expensive debt. And when you increase interest rates on that debt, you are not just, say, making it more expensive for businesses to borrow, to fund investment, you're making it much more expensive for ordinary people to fund the purchases that they need to survive often because they can't cover their day-to-day -day expenses. So it's really kind of a stealth tax on people who, by necessity, have had to take out lots of debt. Um, and that obviously creates many more problems when it comes to inequality. You then have the longer term issues or the medium term issues of uh, the fact that, you know, businesses will invest less and that will mean higher uh, unemployment. Um, so raising interest rates, tightening monetary policy is not going to do what we want it to do. 
there are other options. So first and foremost, um, a lot more people now have been talking about the idea of price controls on basic necessities. Now, this is something that um, we have experience of. So in the UK, we have the energy price cap, which is an example of a price control. Um, in lots of developing countries, they have price controls on basic food stuff, so kind of grain or fuel or whatever, um, whether those are funded by kind of government subsidies or um subsidies to producers, sorry, or um, whether they're distributed to consumers as payments or whatever. There's lots of different models for this. Um, and that is potentially a model as well of saying we're going to control the prices of various necessities that people need to survive and kind of fund the excess production of those necessities to make sure that everyone has access to basic foodstuffs, you know, electricity, fuel, the things that they need, they need to live. And that just makes sure that the poorest do not end up paying disproportionately for rising prices. And this is going to be particularly important in much of the global South, because yes, inflation is high here, but food prices are going up everywhere. And they'll actually continue to go up everywhere because of the impact of climate breakdown. Um, and, you know, that is basically going to mean that, that poverty is going to increase and people will continue to basically starve to death. And that's just un unforgivable in the world that we live in today, in a world as rich as, as the one we are living in now. So price controls, really important. Longer term, we need to think about our energy system. And this is obviously crucial, not just because of um, uh, of, um, of inflation, but also obviously because of climate breakdown. And actually now, you know, looking at national security, right? Like a big part of um, the, the limitation of the sanctions regime that's being imposed on Russia at the moment is that Russia gets so much of its... Um, uh, revenues um, from trade, from the export of, of natural gas, and energy is being excluded in across, you know, m most all of these sanctions, basically energy is being excluded because Europe, the US, we all rely on Rus Russian energy. And part of the reason that we rely on Russian energy is because politicians have not diversified, they've not put the money into renewables and energy diversification in the way that they should have been doing 20, 30 years ago, simply just to tackle climate breakdown. Um, so there are a whole host of very, very good reasons why we should be doing that. Another factor is that really properly investing in decarbonization of our energy grid, of our transport sector, et cetera, creates jobs and helps us potentially um, move out of this, uh, of this crisis as well. So short term, I'd like to see more talk about price controls. Longer term, I'd like to see investment um, and diversification. And, and also, you know, these issues around supply chains. There are a lot of people who basically argued that before the financial crisis, that was kind of peak globalization. We had this incredibly complex and interconnected world economy um, where if any part of it broke down, the whole system would come crashing down. And we've seen the limitations of that now. Um, and I imagine that there'll be something of a push for that reason, and also for reasons relating to climate, for um, you know a, a, a movement towards um, production and consumption at home. So in the UK, for example, we import so much of our food; um, it's bad for the environment, um, and uh, it's yeah, you know, not great for a whole host of other reasons. So um, a movement towards kind of more domestic production and consumption would be another one. Mm. Uh, what you're saying reminds me of recently, uh, uh, while there was the discussion about how to respond to Russia, I think it was uh, Jason Furman, a, a former Obama advisor, who, who told the New York Times, well, you know, Russia's 
fairly unimportant to the global economy except for oil and gas mm-hmm. which is one of these incredible you know oh only the oh <laughs> only oil and gas only the basis of all economic activity <laughs> great <laughs> exactly well I, that, that's really fascinating uh, paul i don't know if you if you have any more questions about the inflation issue before we kind of move into to some other topics yeah uh, j- just following on from what Bryce was saying um I, I guess another kind of policy prescription for all of this that you that you've written about before um, I'm thinking of in, in the corona crash you're talking about um, uh, public ownership of financial institutions and, yeah. and you know bringing them under democratic democratic control I'm just wondering if you can talk a bit about that how that fits into to that and kind of what role it would play and, and how it would sort of help things I guess yeah so public ownership of the finance sector kind of the socialization of the finance sector um, would potentially help limit some of those problems that I mentioned when we're thinking about the transmission mechanism for monetary policy um, and the distributive impact of monetary policy. So if you had, say, like a public, um, an infrastructure of public consumer banking, you would be able to support low-income households to access um, relatively cheap credit to fund essentials where that was necessary. Um, and in doing so, you know, if you had to increase interest rates, you would then be able to kind of limit the impact that that would have on the poorest households, as well as, you know, more generally preventing them from being forced to go to loan sharks and um, taking out other high interest debt. Um, and, you know, that is bad for inequality, but it's also bad for the economy because it just means that, you know, more money being sucked from the bottom where it's spent up to the top where it's saved. Uh, so there's a very strong case, I think, for um, for doing that. Um, and yeah, kind of supporting low income households to reduce their levels of debt. Um, over the longer term, public finance is really important in terms of funding a lot of those big infrastructure projects um, because you are not going to get the financing necessary to, say, completely decarbonize a country's energy system from the private sector. You're going to need long-term um, strategic capital investment. And um, a good way of doing that, you know, you can either just have that simply through the issuance of government bonds and, and government spending, or you can have the creation of um, national investment banks or both. One, I think, really interesting idea would be to have the assets that have been accumulated by central banks over the course of quantitative easing using those to capitalize a national infrastructure bank that could then lend for the purposes of decarbonizing um, the the economy, kind of, you know, new infrastructure projects and and creating jobs and all that sort of stuff. Um, So there's, you know, finance is really like a a critically important infrastructure for like modern economic activity. Um, And at the moment, a few small, very powerful, well, a few large, very powerful um, financial institutions control all of that infrastructure and they basically extract economic rents from their control, their monopoly control, their oligopoly control over that infrastructure. So having a public alternative um, undercuts that. Okay, well, that, that was a great tour through not just uh, history, uh, but but I think just uh, general policy and, and what we should be calling for across the world, not just in the UK, but in New Zealand, United States, for what we want to see from our policymakers. Um, I guess on that topic, to move away from the inflation issue a little bit, um, I want to get your uh, thinking on this. The, the the big debate, maybe not so much in the left, but maybe between sort of the, the liberal side and the, the, the further left side is, on the one hand, the left, uh, to some extent, welcomes the concentration of, of uh, you know, of, of business uh, uh, monopoly, the, the theory being that eventually, if, if these industries are concentrated, 
we can uh, 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 put them into public ownership and then have more effective central planning of the economy. Um, however, you know, the, the counter argument to that might be that, well, you know, the, the left or anyone who wants to put industry into public ownership is going to be out of power for, for a while. Uh, and so in the meantime, you risk sort of creating all sorts of market distortions by allowing monopolization to happen with this, this uh, 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 kind of, uh, aspiration of eventually nationalizing it. Um, and so th it's better to just kind of take our wins and maybe uh, embark on anti-monopoly action now and sort of kill some of these market distortions. Where do you fall in this? Uh, should we be welcoming um, this, this concentration among industry to, to eventually uh, uh, you know, be able to do all these things that we want to do? Or is that maybe uh, uh, such a, a faraway prospect at this point that, that maybe we shouldn't consider it? Yeah, no. I mean, that whole view always relied on the idea that um, the concentration of industry would create the kinds of contradictions that would facilitate the demise of capitalism at the same time as creating the conditions that would facilitate the emergence and growth of a revolutionary agent, namely the proletariat, that would be able to take control of the state or destroy the state and build a new state and then take control over those industries, which has proved you know, not historically accurate for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, and, you know, so there are a lot of limitations there because um, when you strip out that fairly deterministic view, what you see is that market concentration and monopoly power affects the balance of power within capitalism more generally and actually pushes power in favor of capital over labor. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of different reasons for this. One of the most obvious is that when you have a small number of very powerful companies, each of them run by, um, you know, very powerful individuals and actually often owned and controlled by a small number of powerful shareholders, asset managers, for example, that control, you know, percentages of, of all major companies. You have a small and relatively cohesive elite that can exist and cohere um, you know, both kind of within private institutions where they can coordinate, but also within the state. And that's really, really important because when you get more monopoly power, um, it tends to be associated with um, greater state capture, basically. Um, and that happens at the national level. It happens at the local level. It happens within central banks. It happens within, you know, government itself. Um, and you see it, you know, very obviously today, the case of Amazon, for example, um, and just the extraordinary power that Amazon has demonstrated to coerce, particularly states in the US, state governments, um, to just completely uh, accede to all of its demands, um, even when that means kind of introducing pretty terrible low-wage low wage jobs without paying any tax in, uh, in a local economy. Um, so, yeah, you have to really think uh, in terms of power and in terms of politics when considering these these questions. And broadly speaking, you know, the trend towards growing market concentration has been bad for workers. If you just look at the conditions faced by most workers working in these massive monopolies. And the reason for that, of course, is that monopoly power also often means monopsony power, which basically means monopoly is the bigger, the only buyer in a market. A monopsonist is the only, uh, sorry, monopoly is the only seller in a market. A monopsonist is the only buyer in a market. So when you're the only firm purchasing, let's say labor in a, um, uh, in a particular area, then you have a huge power to dictate wages, conditions, everything else. 
and workers have no choice really other than to accept those wages and conditions. Um, so Amazon has done this, and I'm just using Amazon because it's what I've been looking at recently in small towns um, and cities all over the UK and the US and in other parts of the world, just gone in and said, these are the wages, these are the conditions. If you don't like it, you know, screw off. And by the way, you can't form a union either. Um, and, you know, worked within the state as well to make sure that that, that is all, um, you know, comes off without a hitch. So power, but also I think there's another big question here, which is that we often rely on the idea that centralized planning of the economy um, to impose rational human control over the anarchy of the market is what we are going is like is socialism, basically. But actually, the, the book I'm working on at the moment is looking at the ways in which we already have forms of central planning within capitalism. And that central planning is not the opposite of capitalism. You can have centrally planned capitalist societies. They will never be entirely centrally planned. You cannot completely contain the anarchy of the market. Um, you know, you, like you just have to look at somewhere like China, for example, this idea of like a state capitalist society where there's huge amounts of central planning. But also looking at some of the big monopolistic corporations, there is, again, a, a lot of central planning that takes place within those institutions. Finance is the arch central planner. The question is not whether or not we have a level of planning. We will always have some planning within capitalist economies. The question is whose interests are being served by that planning process. Um, and as a result, you know, my argument in this book is that capitalism is not characterized by the kind of absence of planning, the opposite of um, a capitalist economy characterized by basically domination by capital is, um, you know, the liberation of working people. And that means, I think, thoroughly democratizing our economy. It means thoroughly democratizing our society to put wealth and power into the hands of working people. Um, so it's not just saying the state um, takes control of big swathes of industry and then does whatever it wants with it. We had that in large cases during um, the 50s and 60s. And whilst life was better, it wasn't a socialist utopia. Um, what we actually need to have is, yes, the socialization of wealth, so public ownership, but also democratic ownership. So workers need to be in control. Um, communities need to be in control. We need a measure of kind of, um, you know, reinvigorating local economic democracy. We need to have the same sort of sorts of um, democratic safeguards put in place at the level of the international economy. Um, we need to kind of steadily democratize the central bank. Um, democratize all of our public institutions so that people can influence and act as a counterweight so the combined power of the working class can act as a counterweight um, not just to capital itself but also to capital's agents within the state um, and yeah that's kind of why I think um, like growing market concentration isn't something that we should welcome because um, it makes that battle much more unequal having said that Breaking up the big monopolies um, is a not particularly politically feasible, as we've seen, because, you know, this like state politicians and bureaucrats are in the pockets of these monopolies, but also um, because it doesn't really cut to the, the root core of the issue, which is private ownership of the means of production by capital. Um, there are, I think, much better ways of thinking about, you know, particularly when we think about big tech firms, thinking about, again, not just finance, but also data as a form of, of infrastructure, sorry, uh, digital platforms as a form of infrastructure um, and uh, having um, either kind of 
cooperative or public or socially owned alternatives that are created that have much better safeguards when it comes to privacy um, and that are run in a way that um, kind of, yeah, promotes the interest of, of both workers, but also the users of, of those um, of those commodities. So, yeah, I would say, again, public, democratic, social ownership is always going to beat trying to tackle or regulate or, you know, tax uh, private sector firms because they'll always find a way around it. That probably ties in nicely with something that I wanted to ask, which was, you know, let, let's say uh, we did have kind of a, a political moment in, in New Zealand or elsewhere. I don't know how likely it is in the UK now with um, <laughs> the state of the Labour Party there, but um, let's say there was a political party that, you know, promoted um, something like, like you're suggesting to, to tackle these problems. Um, in a sort of small economy like New Zealand, how how do we contend with the sort of threat or um, you know the idea that of capital flight? Like, mm. um, if a whole bunch of capital exits the economy, um, causing a bunch of disruption, like what, what do we what do we do about that? How do we kind of address it or, or think about it? Um, you know, when we're kind of devising our political strategy. Yeah, well, I mean, the first thing is really um, making sure to build international solidarity. Um, and international links that allow you to really kind of undermine or get around the Washington consensus. So first and foremost, that means forging links with other socialist countries um, and socialist, socialist governments. There have been governments in Latin America, particularly in, for example, Ecuador um, and also Chile increasingly today, um, where there is um, you know, a real focus on trying to build this sense of socialist solidarity across borders in order to facilitate um, economic development at the national level. Uh, but also, you know, often this is framed not just in terms of facilitating national economic development, but supporting other states to do the same. Um, so like Cuba is a great example of this, like uh, it sends doctors all around the world um, to like support states with, with which it has alliances, even as it itself is subject to kind of drastic um, sanctions. Um, so forging international alliances is, I think, going to be really, really important for that. The second thing is um, strategically leveraging different sources of, of financing and funding. Um, so like today, there are many more potential sources of financing and funding um, than just the IMF and the World Bank and the Washington Consensus Institutions. Um, China is a pretty liberal funder of infrastructure projects all over the world um, and has almost no conditions when it comes to um, borrowing uh, requirements. The issue is, of course, that it is still an authoritarian state capitalist economy and a lot of those countries that kind of haven't been able to repay debts or where the infrastructure projects have been subject to kind of corruption. There's been the Chinese state then taking ownership of the assets that have been, um, been built. This has been particularly the case with uh, Belt and Road projects like CPAC, the China-Pakistan um, corridor. So there are limitations to that strategy, but it's also really, you know, and a really important source of funding and financing to allow any, you know, non-Washington aligned country to get around those Washington consensus institutions. Um, and then finally, you know, there are lots of ways to just embed capital locally. So one of those ways, of course, is capital controls. Um, and these are becoming less and less unfashionable. Um, so you can now do this much more easily, um, whether that's in the form of like actual like quantitative controls on capital movement or in the form of taxes on capital movement in and out of the country. 
clamping down on tax avoidance and evasion because a lot of the money that would move out would be illicit. In the UK, that would be very easy because we could, if we wanted to, just kind of shut down the secrecy jurisdictions and tax havens. But in New Zealand, I know that there's already been some stuff that's been done on, for example, um, uh, foreign-owned properties and um, tax avoidance and evasion on that front. So there's more that could be done there. Um, and the last thing I was going to say, oh, yeah, so... Um, at the kind of level of the, the public sector more generally, um, and actually all the way down to the local level, public ownership and things like community wealth building, where you are um, fostering local economic development by encouraging the emergence of cooperatives, by encouraging the use of kind of publicly owned firms, rather than big outsourcing companies like Capita, G4S, whatever. All that means that that money is then fixed in the local economy. And this is the whole idea behind community wealth building is that you use anchor institutions that can't move to embed capital locally and create jobs and create long long-term economic growth and you can obviously do that at the national level as well through um yeah public ownership uh which obviously means that that those, those infrastructures those resources which is really what we're, we're worried about when we're thinking about kind of capital movement is who is going to be able to control the resources that we need to foster um you know innovation create jobs etc um that allows you to keep that uh, within the national economy Okay, well, that was that was great. Thank you very much for for giving us uh, your insight, Grace. I, I feel like uh, I learned a lot. I hope everyone listening uh, learned a lot. This is the bit where we now uh, give you a chance to shamelessly uh, uh, shell and 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 hawk whatever uh, product or, or upcoming thing you have. So, uh, if you want to give us an idea of where people can find your work, uh, any exciting projects that you want to announce, or at least sort of. Uh, give people the the knowledge that, that's coming up. Uh, th this is your chance. Okay, follow me on Twitter at Grace Blakely. Blakely has two e's in it. B l a k e l e y. Um, I've got a book coming out next year, so keep an eye out for that. Um, subscribe to Tribune Magazine, which is where I work for. Which uh, where I work. Um, especially if you're in the UK and you want you know updates on what's going on on the left and you know general access to articles and stuff um and finally this is not something that i'm hulking but it's just something that i say all the time now join a union and <laughs> um if you're not already in one fantastic uh and, and this is the part where i uh, do the usual uh shilling uh where i tell our listeners to Subscribe and like our stuff, share it around. If you liked this interview, if you liked some of the other stuff we've been putting out, spread it as far as you can. Make sure that other people can hear it so that they can get access to things that they wouldn't normally maybe hear on the TV or read in the newspapers. Um, and if you're so inclined, give us a, a few bucks uh, as well. Uh, helps us pay for uh, the labor that goes into uh, editing these things. Uh, but in any case, uh, I want to thank, I guess, Grace Blakely once again for coming on. This has been a, a fantastic uh, interview. And uh, we're going to sign off from one of Jonah. We will see you uh, later in the week. Relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full? The relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full?